Welcome to the Rapid Response RN Podcast, helping you keep your finger on the pulse of your patient's condition with real-life stories from the front lines of nursing. This podcast can help you sharpen your assessment skills, improve your ability to recognize the signs and symptoms of your patient's decline, be inspired to speak up and advocate, and know how to jump into action to promote the best outcome for your patients. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. I am so excited for season two, and we are kicking off this season with a Q&A episode. In case you missed the announcement, this season I'll be alternating every other episode with a Q&A, where I'll be answering questions from you, my listeners. So this week, I'll be answering a question that I get all the time. And next week, I'll be doing an episode about a real-life rapid response call for a patient who went into AFib RVR. This question I get quite frequently, not only from you guys via email and via Instagram, but also in my workplace from coworkers. And it must be a struggle for a lot of nurses because there are some great, hilarious memes out there in the nursing world about this. And the question is, what can I do to help during an emergency? I'm sure you've seen the memes of people trying to be helpful and bringing Flush's stat into the code. And yes, that is very helpful, but there's so much more that you could contribute to help save the patient's life besides whipping out a flush from your pocket. So let's break it down roll by roll. When things are starting to look bad and it's obvious this patient's getting sicker, someone, ideally the charge nurse, should start quickly assigning roles so it's clear who is responsible for what during the emergency. And the roles are as follows. Airway, compressions, Medication administration, crash cart manager, documenter or scribe, and team leader. There are a few other roles that I'll go through that are nice to have, but these are essential. And every hospital has a little different workflow, so I encourage you to ask how roles are chosen and delegated in your hospital. But in the few hospitals I've worked in, this is the general role distribution. So let's begin with the easiest job in the code, compressions. Literally anybody can do compressions. I, I know this is the sexiest job in the code because they're all sweaty and up front and center, pressing hard on the chest, literally saving the patient's life. And while this is the most important job in the code because high quality CPR is so crucial if the patient is going to have a chance at return of spontaneous circulation, it is still the easiest job in the code. You don't have to think about what's next or what drugs are needed or any other details about the timing of anything, but just pressing hard and fast. Even if you are new, even if you've never done it before on a real person, you too can do compressions. Pro tip, take off your badge and stethoscope so it's not smacking you in the face while you're trying to perform high quality CPR. And if you're short like me, Either grab a stool or put your knees in the bed with the patient so they're able to lock out your elbows and use the leverage of your upper body weight to help you press hard and get a full recoil off the chest. Every code needs to have two or three, or for a long code, even more people lined up to do CPR. And at my hospital, I like to make the compressor count down when they're about to swap out. So they'll go three, two, one, switch, so as not to interrupt compressions. Generally speaking, we swap out compressors every two minutes, 
But if you get tired of the one minute mark, it's totally okay to tap out and have someone else take over. I would rather switch compressors every minute and ensure we're still providing high quality CPR than make somebody go the full two minutes and their CPR be inadequate to produce enough cardiac output. So don't be afraid of being the compressor. Literally anybody can do it. Next is airway. If someone assigned you to do airway, you are responsible for hooking up the bag valve mask to the wall oxygen and turning the flow up to 15 liters or greater. Make sure that the mask is in the proper position with the pointy part covering the patient's nose and a good seal around the mask. You actually do have to watch for chest rise and fall. And if you meet resistance or have trouble squeezing the bag, let someone know. One time I hopped on the airway and I just couldn't squeeze the bag. So I took it off to look inside the patient's mouth and they had choked on grilled cheese. Once we removed the obstruction, the grilled cheese, we got a pulse back. At some point, the airway roll will turn into two people because someone has to set up for intubation while the other person continues to provide bag valve mass ventilations. Any roll, nurse tech or nurse, physical therapist or physician, respiratory therapist, anybody who has CPR, like the certification, can do airway. Next up is medication administration. This is a role that needs to be done by the nurse. At our hospital, the pharmacist does come to the code and they often will help draw up the medications, but actually pushing it in the patient's IV needs to be done by the nurse. What's so great about most medications we give in a cardiac arrest is they come in pre-filled syringes. So you just have to pop the tops off, screw them together, and now you have a full adult dose. You don't have to ask, how many milligrams or how many mLs am I giving? If it's an adult, you know you're gonna give the whole amp every time. There are a few medications that don't come as pre-filled syringes like magnesium or amiodarone, but the bulk of them do. If you are the nurse administering medications, make sure you're losing closed loop communication. So when an order is given, you repeat back to confirm you heard correctly. And then once you push in the patient, you verbalize that you gave the medication loud enough so the documenter can hear you. Then you wait for the nod or say, I got it. So you know they wrote down what you just did. That's closing the loop. You say it out loud, they repeat it back, the loop is closed, we all know it's taken care of. I have a little tidbit I like to share with people so that you don't make the same mistakes. It's so important that the medication administration nurse ensures that the medication they are giving is actually making it into the patient's bloodstream. I went to one rapid response where the nurse had already started giving medications and the IV was infiltrated. So the arm with the IV in it was double the size of the opposite arm. So all those medications they gave never actually made it to the bloodstream. They were just hanging out in the third space, taking their time to absorb. Another up response I went to, there were so many people in the room. The nurse had a, a liter of IV fluids connected and they were standing like four feet away from the patient. They were giving all of the co-medications through the Y site of the IV tubing. That would usually not be a big deal. Except when I showed up, I noticed the patient's sheets were sopping wet. And I'm feeling around trying to figure out what they're wet from or like what happened. And I realized that the lower lock had come disconnected from the IV and all of the IV fluids and epinephrine and amiodarone and calcium and sodium bicarbonate, all the things that nurse had given through the Y site never actually made it to the patient. They just leaked out onto the sheet. 
So don't let that happen to you. Pro tip, every medication given during a code goes in as fast as possible. You don't have to push anything slowly. The patient is dead. You cannot make them any deader by pushing a medication too fast. So slam it in. The next role I like to call crash cart manager. This is most often the role that I end up assuming once I make sure everything else is being taken care of. Because the person who's running the crash cart needs to be comfortable with where everything is located in the crash cart, as well as how to run the defibrillator. So if you have never popped a crash cart before, or never had the chance to charge the defibrillator and press shock, don't volunteer for this role. However, that doesn't mean you should never be the crash cart manager. It just means you need to ask someone to show you and maybe ask to assist the person that's doing it. But I feel like this should be a job for someone who is more experienced or has taken the time to really learn the crash cart. The crash cart manager will be passing supplies to people and they will have the defibrillator charged and ready to go for a pulse check when it's coming up. They need to be able to anticipate what's coming next in the code so they can have the supplies ready. The next role is the documenter, which you might also have heard called the scribe. To me, this is the hardest job in the code. Not only are you having to write down and keep track of everything that's happening in the room, but you're also the timekeeper. So everyone's looking to you asking, Sarah, how long has it been since we gave epinephrine? Sarah, how long to the next pulse check? Sarah, how long have you been running this code? I feel like this is the job for a more experienced nurse, like the charge nurse or the senior nurse on the floor, maybe the ICU nurse responding to the code. It could be very overwhelming if you're not comfortable in a code, and now you're expected to write down everything that's happening. So here's my pro tip for this one. If you are new, I would recommend standing next to the documenter and go ahead and also document at the same time. Like, they're going to document the real one that's going to go in the medical record, and you can document simultaneously what you think needs to go in the chart. Then afterwards, you and the experienced documenter can review what you wrote and compare so you can learn what you maybe don't need to write or like cut out the fluff. <laughs> um, you can also see maybe what doesn't need to be restated through the code note or the thing that you forgot. Sometimes people forget important things like the fact that we defibrillated or what the rhythm was on the monitor. Again, just because you've never done it before doesn't mean you could never do it in the future. You just have to put yourself out there and get the opportunity to learn. Documenters need to be good at closed loop communication to ensure that what they're writing down is what's actually happening in the room. Another good rule of thumb is that everybody goes by the documenter's clock. The time on the monitor and the clock on the wall and the doctor's watch will likely all be different Whatever time it happens on the documenter's clock is the time that goes in the medical record. There are a couple apps that you can use to help keep track of things during your code. One is called CodeScribe. It helps keep track when it's time to give more epinephrine and when it's time to pause and check a pulse. Very helpful. Another thing that I typically do is go ahead and write out a time for every single minute. So if the code starts at 7 o'clock, I'd write 7 o'clock, 7.01. 702, 703, 704, and whatever happens in that minute, I would write next to that time. So it could be 701, CPR in progress, epinephrine given, amiodarone 300 milligrams, IO place, whatever it is happening in that minute, and then the next minute comes, next line. 
Otherwise, you end up with a chicken scratch all over the paper. So try to keep it organized. Um, additionally, when you write everything in that minute in that row, it's very easy to see how long it's been since the last thing. So how long has it been since we gave up an effort or checked a pulse? Just count how many minutes since you wrote it down. All right. Per ACLS guidelines currently, we give epinephrine every three to five minutes and we pause and check a pulse every two minutes. So another pro tip if you're the documenter is to position yourself at the foot of the bed so you can see everything that's happening and you're close to the people that are giving the medications. Um, it's a very, very challenging role. So make sure to thank your documenter. The final essential role in a code is the team leader. This role might start as the charge nurse, and when the patient is crashing, he or she quickly assigns roles to everyone in the room. Then the rapid response nurse or ICU nurse might take over, just running the ACLS algorithm. But ultimately, it'll be the provider that's running the code, whether that's the attending or the resident, nurse practitioner, physician assistant. The team leader is the person that gives orders and directs the code to ensure that everything runs smoothly. And I've seen all types of team leaders the ones that yell, and the ones that are so timid you can barely hear them. In my opinion, a good team leader speaks loud enough and clearly, but does not yell. And they maintain a balance between a sense of urgency and a sense of calm about what's happening in the room. There have been a couple times when there were too many cooks in the kitchen, and I had the attending and the resident and maybe a consulting physician or a surgeon all trying to run the code. This can be an absolute cluster because you get duplicate orders or orders that conflict with each other or they're asking the same questions over and over and the documenter's trying to figure out what's next. It's, it's not that's best for the patient. Really, it should be one person leading the code. If it's a resident, they're totally allowed to look to their attending for the next step, but there should not be multiple people giving out orders. And if you find yourself in that situation, it's okay to say, all right, who's running this code? Or who am I getting orders from for this code? Just a little side note, there is a growing wave of support for nurse-led ACLS. The concept here is that any nurse who is trained and experienced with ACLS can run through the ACLS algorithm and ensure that pulse checks and medication administration happens within the appropriate time window. This frees up the physician's mind and eyes to focus on figuring out the diagnosis and any advanced interventions that need to happen, like placing an airway or a chest tube or central access or interpreting any diagnostics that happen during resuscitation. With this model, you have a nurse lead who focuses on the flow of the code and the physician lead who focuses on higher level diagnostic and therapeutic procedures. But if that's not the culture at your hospital, I would not just assume that role. However, if you are passionate about it, do some research, and maybe you're the person who can start that ball rolling to move towards that model in your hospital. I hope to do a future episode solely about nurse-led ACLS, because there's a lot to say about what the literature says and how much it supports this, and the culture change that's required to get to that point. But for now, I thought I would just mention it to pique your curiosity. So in summary, we have two or more people assigned to compressions. One and ultimately two people on airway, one person responsible for medication administration, someone responsible for running the crash cart, someone documenting, and someone acting as a facilitator or running the code, often called the team lead. 
There are a couple other important roles that I love when someone rises up and takes ownership of. The first is the runner. All of the previous roles that I mentioned, I would not want them to leave the room at all. It's really nice when someone says, I'll be the runner. And then when additional supplies are needed, I can call out to them. Hey, John, can you grab me a blood pressure cuff or a towel or some more flushes or whatever might be needed to continue the resuscitation? Another valuable role is the code bouncer. In my hospital, at least, way more people come to the code than we actually need in the room. Nursing students and residents and respiratory students and people who just want to watch. It's really nice when someone helps to clear out the space and move all the vases of flowers and the 12 wolf blankets and all the extra clutter in the room and make space for the core code team. And then if there's any additional bodies that want to watch and learn, they find them a spot along the wall, not in the doorway. (laughs) And when there's too many bodies, the bouncer has the confidence and the tact to kindly ask them to leave. So if you are a nursing student and want to watch and learn in a code blue, yes, please do that. But don't stand in the doorway. That is the worst spot. Park yourself like in the far corner of the room so you're not blocking the doorway, impeding people from getting into the patient. Absolutely, I want you to be at the code, but just don't be right in the doorway. Thank you so much. You are welcome there. Love your friendly rapid response nurse. (laughs) Okay, another important role is someone to be with the family. And really, anybody can do this. It can be the chaplain or the unit clerk or a nurse tech or another nurse. Anyone who's willing to share space with someone who is scared and in crisis. I personally love this role, but I barely get to do it as a rapid response nurse because I'm needed to help run the code. But on the times where I've been privileged enough to be the family support person, I love being there for families in crisis because even if my team is unable to resuscitate the patient, I feel like what I did that day was very valuable and the family's memory of a really traumatic event. And the final important role in the code are people who are willing to step up and take care of the other patients on the unit when half the department is in the room trying to perform resuscitation. Especially if the code is in a semi-private room, can someone please find a way to get A bed out of there so they don't have to hear the code happening in B bed? Additionally, there's still 30 or more patients on your unit outside of the line of cardiac arrest, so someone has to go lay eyes on them and check on them and answer call bells so they're not completely ignored during the code. Now let's talk about if you are the first responder and you find a patient who is apneic or pulseless. All right, so first, call a code blue, however you do that in your hospital. If it's a button or a lever or whatever you press on the wall or if you have to dial a number on your phone or just simply yell in the hallway, code blue, need some help in here. Something to get more hands coming to you and then hop on that chest and start doing CPR. The next person in the room should assume the role of airway and the next person should be getting the patient attached to the defibrillator. The primary nurse is often the one that finds the patient, obviously you should start CPR, but as soon as any other body comes in the room, I would like the primary nurse to be off the patient's chest so they have a second to catch their breath so they're able to clearly communicate what led up to this event. As far as like the patient's history, any other relevant information to the code team, if you are the primary nurse, 
don't feel like you're expected to do everything or run the resuscitation. It is so much harder to think clearly when it's your patient. But whatever you do, even if you feel like you're the newest nurse, fresh off orientation, if it's your patient at cardiac arrest, don't leave to go check on your other patients. Delegate that to someone else. You are needed to stay in the code because you know more than anyone else from the code team does about your patient. If you're a nurse tech, you play a valuable role as well. Even though you can't administer medication or document during the code, you can do CPR, you can check a blood sugar, you can clear space in the room and make sure there's space for everyone else who's gonna be filing in, you can be the runner, you can provide bad valve mass ventilation, you can be the family support person. There are a lot of important roles that you can take on outside of meds and documenting. The final thing I wanna say is please feel empowered to speak up and share anything you know about the patient that might be relevant. Don't feel like your job is done when the code team arrives. They are totally relying on you to share any little detail you know about the patient's labs or history, even what their stool looks like. <laughs> so much can be gleaned from what you share to help lead the team towards appropriate interventions and diagnosis. And the last thing I wanna say is, just because it's a code, doesn't mean manners go out the window. Just because someone's dying, you don't have to yell like you're on a battlefield. You can talk in a calm, directive voice. You can even say please and thank you and good job or strong work. I've been doing CPR for a long time and do not lack any confidence in my ability to do CPR. But when someone says great compressions while I'm doing CPR, man, it makes me do them even stronger and more effectively. When someone recognizes you do something good, you want to do it all the more. So build each other up in the code. Great job getting that IV. Great transition between compressions. Thanks for grabbing me that suction setup. And if someone's not doing a good job, do not bash them in front of everyone. If the person doing CPR looks tired, say, all right, let's go ahead and switch compressors. If the person giving bag valve mass ventilation is squeezing the bag too fast, just gently remind them they only need to squeeze the bag every four or five seconds. Positive team dynamics make for a better workplace and also a more effective resuscitation. All right, I hope I answered your questions. If you would like me to clarify anything further, please direct message me on Instagram. I will answer it to the best of my ability. Instagram's probably the best place to send me any questions you have about any topic. So if you haven't already, come follow me at the Rapid Response RN. One last thing, I'm putting the final touches on my Rapid Response and Rescue course. Thank you to everyone who's messaged me about it. I'm almost done. I am really excited to share it with you all. The next Rapid Response RN podcast episode is going to be really good. I'll be interviewing a cardiology nurse practitioner talking about an AFib RVR case. You won't want to miss it. Well, that's it for today's episode. If you like this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can shoot me an email with questions or comments, and it would mean so much if you could take a moment to write a review on iTunes, as this helps more listeners find this podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport, so trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. You've been listening to the Rapid Response RN Podcast. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. 
They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing, and your patient's care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at RapidResponseRNPodcast at gmail.com or on the Rapid Response RN Podcast Facebook page, as well as the podcast website, RapidResponseRN.com.